Good morning. Well, I have the privilege of joining all of you in your study of practical theology. And in take, you guys are going through a study where you are tape, taking timeless truths of Scripture and how to apply those timeless truths to today, to year 2021, how we live right now. Last, last week, um, Pastor Aaron start, uh, went through a study of God's sovereignty, more specifically how, um, how we are to think about God's sovereignty in connection with the government. But overall, as you guys learned last week, that whatever topic we're talking about, when it comes to God's sovereignty, he is in control of everything. Everything he's in control of, he is the one who guides all of history, but even more specifically, even us as individuals, he guides our lives. And that truth is very easy to accept when things are going right, when things are going well with us. That's a little bit easier for us to take. However, we need to have an understanding, uh, and we need to have a theological, biblical understanding of trials, of when things are going wrong in our life, how we are to think about that. So next week, that's actually what Pastor Myrtle is going to be teaching on, is a biblical perspective of trials, how we are to view uh, affliction, suffering, things going wrong in our lives. This morning, this morning, my goal is to actually tee up Myrl, to kind of set the stage for him next week. Uh, this morning is not going to be a topical study, but we are going to be spending time in just one passage that is a very significant passage as far as having a biblical understanding of trials. It is a, it is a passage many of you are very familiar with. It is Hebrews chapter 12. If you could, please turn with me to Hebrews chapter 12. And we are going to be spending our time in verses 4 through 11. And there is a spreadsheet that just has a simple outline for you guys to take notes. If you need one, I believe they're sitting in the back. But please, please turn with me to Hebrews 12, 4 through 11. And follow along with me as I read. You have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood in your striving against sin. And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom the father does not discipline? But if you are without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, so that we may share in his holiness. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet those who have been trained by it, afterwards it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness. Reading this passage, without a careful 
reading of this passage, just kind of skimming over it, it would be very easy to look through this and think, Lord's discipline, suffering, scourging, I don't want anything to do with that. <laughs> I, don't, I do not want that in my life. However, we are in desperate need of discipline. Me, when I was in high school, I, had, I was very blessed to go to a church that shared the gospel, and I was also blessed to go to a youth group where I had a lot of friends. There was about six or eight of us guys. There would be a constant joke within the church that if you saw one of us, the rest of us were somewhere around because we were always together. We were always together. We were closer than friends. We were more like brothers. However, there was always, there was always this one thing where my friends, these guys I hung out with, they, they were actually a little different than me. And there was something about my life, and I hated it. <laughs> it was something I did not like. And the thing that was different about most of my friends and me was they, is I had parents, and they did not. Now, I know that sounds weird. <laughs> I know that sounds strange. How did all my friends, how did I have friends that were a bunch of orphans? That's not what I'm saying. My friends had mothers and fathers. However, they did not have mothers and fathers that parented them, that did not guide them, did not correct them, that did not discipline them. They had, they were mostly from broken homes. Most of their family were not Christians. And because of that, they had a lot of freedom that I did not have. And me, and my immaturity, and my wickedness, I was always a little jealous that these guys, they were constantly doing whatever they wanted. They were constantly calling me saying, let's go to the river, let's do this, let's do that. And I'm saying, I got to work. I got to be on the farm. There's things I have to do. And because of that, many times, I was jealous because of that. However, as time went on, as time went on, I started, to, I started to notice how my friend's freedom started to affect them and more or less started to get them into trouble, not so much with their parents because their parents didn't do a very good job um, parenting them, but more or less in trouble with their souls. I saw them start to dabble in things that brought shame on them, brought shame on us, our youth group. And I'm ashamed to say that over the years, their lives started to look a lot like their parents'. They're, they're undisciplined and no guidance in their life turned, turned down wrong paths. And now their lives, most of the lives, is they have broken marriages. Many of them have addictions of alcohol, drug abuse, pornography. And now their lives are, are in turmoil. And the very thing, the very thing which I used to look at them and be jealous of, of their freedom, how they get to do whatever they want, now I look at how my parents shepherded me, and I'm extremely grateful for the constraints that they put on me, the correction that they gave me. That is something now is a huge part of my development as a Christian. And now, today... Not under my parents' household. I'm not under their discipline. But as far as my life as a Christian and your, all your lives as Christians, a life of discipline has not ended. In fact, in some ways, it's even intensified because now it is God who disciplines you. The one who sees everything that you do, who's constantly with you, sees everything. He is the one who disciplines us. And we need his discipline. It is good for us. Not only is it good for us, but we should expect it. This is something that should be an expectation in our lives. We should expect the Lord's discipline, and we need the Lord's discipline. 
Before we start breaking down this passage, just to give a little bit of background to give us context of where we're at. So the book of Hebrews, the author of the book of Hebrews is unknown, but as you go through it and you see what he's writing to, he's clearly writing to an audience that was mainly Jewish. They were mainly Jews where he is imploring them to don't go back. Don't go back to the old covenant because the new covenant far surpasses. In fact, the bottom line is nothing compares with Jesus Christ. So don't go back. And chapter 12, the passage that we're in today, follows chapter 11. As many of you know, is that's a chapter where he starts making a list of people within scripture who demonstrate faithfulness. They live faithfully. Many people call this passage the, the heroes of the faith. However, we want to be kind of careful with terms like that. We don't want to think as we read through chapter 11, we see all these names and things all these people did is like, okay, here are these standards that we can never reach. That's not the point. The point is we need to look at that and say, okay, living life faithfully to God is not only doable, but we can do it because others have. And so when we get to chapter 12, the author transitions from back to his readers. And chapter 12, verse 1, just let me read it for you. He starts off with saying, Therefore, since we have such a great cloud of witnesses surrounding us, let us also lay aside every encumbrance and the sin which so easily entangles us, and let us run with endurance the race that is set before us. So we are supposed to look back at these faithful, these faithful men and women of God and say, okay, we need to be that. And the author says, we have a race. As Christians, we have a race to run. And because of that, we need to be prepared for that race. So knowing that it's doable, seeing the faith of others should inspire us. But also, it does, we also need to be looking towards the one who, our Savior, who actually also demonstrates endurance and suffering. Look at verse 2, this race that we're supposed to run. Verse 2, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of faith, who the joy set before him endured the cross. Despising the shame and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. For consider him who's endured such hostility by sinners against himself that you will not grow weary and lose heart. So we're supposed to, we know that, though, that you, there is those who have been faithful. We can do that. But we also look forward towards our Savior who for us suffered. And we need to look towards him for motivation. And we need to look to him for motivation, for more specifically, endurance. Because as trials happen, as suffering happens in our life, it is possible for us to lose heart, to, us, to lose endurance, perseverance, which just to give a little side note is actually something that Myrtle is going to be talking about later, um, later during our service, which some of you have already heard. We need perseverance. And because of that, God is going to prepare us for that. We have a race to run. And since we have a race to run, it is God's will for us to suffer. God wants us to suffer because he wants us to run the race well. During, these t- during times of trials and suffering, 
It's easy to forget what God's doing in our lives. It's easy to get selfish, and it's easy to forget. However, we need to constantly remind ourselves, constantly remind ourselves that we need to be looking at how God is using these things to shape us and, and make us persevere in the race and to live for him. So those of you who are taking notes, in our passage this morning, we will uncover three reminders of God's beneficial discipline. Three reminders of God's beneficial discipline. We are to expect the Lord's discipline, and we need to constantly remind ourselves that it is for our good, it is for our benefit. And the first reminder that we'll uncover in verses four through six is discipline proclaims who God loves. Discipline proclaims who God loves. In verse four, the author changes his focus from what Christ has done to now what he turns his focus to the authors. And it's really interesting. The author of Hebrews must have been a lawyer because it seems like he was ready for about any argument. You get you go from verses one through three of him saying, okay, you need, to, you need to run a race, you need to get ready, you need to suffer, you need to look towards Christ. And for those of us who are like, it's too difficult, you don't understand my life, things are too hard for me, he writes this, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood and you're striving against sin. So after verses 2 and 3, the author points out Christ was faithful. Christ did shed his blood for us. And then he points to the author and says, this is something you have not done. You need to try harder. We have those who are, have been faithful. Those in chapter 11, they have shed blood, many of them. Christ shed his blood for us. We need to work harder. This term a point of shedding blood, this, point, this term shedding blood. And many times in scripture, it's used as the point of death, actually, actually going to death. And that's pretty harsh. It's pretty harsh. You can imagine walking into one of our pastor's offices, saying something that you're struggling with, and then just kind of looking at you and saying, well, you're still breathing, you're, you, you have, you're still alive. You must not have tried that hard. Come back when you're dead. I mean, that is a pretty, serious, a pretty serious thing to the point of death. Now, that's not necessarily what the author is making, but he is making a comparison, holding up Christ and what he did, and then holding up our struggles that we have in our life, and it should pale in comparison to what he has done. Whatever struggles we're going through, we can handle it, and it is something that we can be equipped to push through. And I know that many of you have extreme struggles. It's not to downplay the struggles of sin. But whatever struggles we have cannot compare to God becoming flesh and coming to earth for our salvation. And that is something we need to constantly remind ourselves of. We need to be reminded of those important truths. And these, these original readers of this letter, there was something else that they need to be rem- reminded of. They needed to be reminded of some important truth. Look down at verse 5 with me. The author continues, he writes, And you have forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. And just stop right there for a second. This is very significant. 
The writer is telling them that they have forgotten something, which means they have already been told something, they've been taught something, and now they have forgotten. And because of that, that is affecting the way that they live. And what have they forgotten? Here in a, next, he actually quotes Proverbs 3, 11 through 12. They have forgotten Scripture. They forgot Scripture, and this audience, who would have been mostly have Jewish heritage, this is something that they would have had. They would have been taught this. They would have been, um, it would have been part of even their heritage, and yet he says, you have forgotten. This is pretty serious for us, and it's kind of, it's something we need to even kind of pause and just think about as we do what we're doing right here. It does matter. Listening to truth, your guys' reading of Scripture throughout the week, the sermon that's going to happen here later on this morning, it does matter. What we have been taught, what we have learned, it is something that not only do we need to remember, but we need to live out that truth, and we need to remind ourselves of that. So what did they forget? They forgot Proverbs. And he continues. He says, records, my son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you're reproved by him. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines, and he scourges every son whom he receives. So the very thing which they forgot, the author is reminding them. And they, he's reminding them of that they are to expect and think rightly about the discipline of the Lord. So what is the discipline of the Lord. The word for discipline here in the Greek is paideus, and it carries the meaning of training a child. It is training, instruction, correction, and this is the Lord correcting you, changing you, instructing you. This is, ta- not, this is taking you who you are and making you different, more, suspe- more specifically, more like his son, more like Christ. However, this discipline, this training, this correction— it is painful. As, as I just read, he uses the word, he, he scourges, scourges every son in whom he receives. The, what does the Lord's discipline look like? It looks like scourging. That is something that I take very lightly. That is something that is very serious. Scourging would have been a whipping. You get a picture of a cat and nine tail, something that's designed to rip your flesh off. It is something extreme punishment. That does not sound pleasant. But as far as us, what does that look like in our life? Of course we know. You know, God is not physically whipping us from heaven. That is not something he does. But what does this scourging look like? What does this discipline, what does this pain look like? Well, it comes in the form of adversity, hardships, trials, suffering. That, that is his sovereign plan to shape our lives. And next week... Myra's going to spend more time going through other places in Scripture where it talks about how we're, we are to think about trials. But what are trials for? One, um, actually, before I started seminary, my, um, I was having lunch with Myra one time, and he gave me a warning of seminary. And it's a good warning not just for seminary students, but all of us. He said, seminary is, is when you go in through seminary, it's like you're a clean sponge, And all of a sudden, the pressures of seminary squeeze you, and dirty water (laughs) comes out. And that's what it's designed to do. It is to shape you. It is supposed to change you. And for us, when the pressures of life come come to us, 
it should, as we see how we are not handling things correctly, we start to see us handle situations in a sinful manner, maybe with impatience or anger of this shouldn't be happening to me, that should make us pause and say, I need to change and I need to seek the Lord, not just for repentance, but for strength to get through this. He uses pressures of life to shape us. And these, so the Lord's discipline takes the form of trials and affliction to shape us to be more like him. And this is going to happen to all believers, so which, which means we need to have the correct thinking of these trials when they happen to us. We need to have the correct theology of how to think about these situations. So going back to the second part of verse 5, there is a command. Do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord. So as far as our thinking, how we are to think about the Lord's discipline, we are not to regard it lightly, as in giving it no weight. That we're almost indifferent to it. It's not that big of a deal. No, we are to give everything that God tells us, give it weight, and it is to not only something that we take serious, but it guides who we are. We are to take everything that he's given us very, very seriously. However, there's another extreme to responding to the discipline of the Lord. And after that, Scripture says, nor faint when you are reproved by him. So also with knowing of the discipline of the Lord, we're not to faint with knowledge of what he's doing with us. Now, are we going to physically faint? Maybe. I I don't know. Probably not. (laughs) That's probably not something that's going to happen. However, what is fainting? It is seeing something and being complete shock of what is happening. You fall down. You're completely out of reality. You take yourself out of reality. You are now worthless. You are not dealing with what is going on. And that is something as Christians, as we are going through trials, we cannot become worthless. We cannot take ourselves away from that reality. It's something we need to embrace. We need to embrace that reality instead of shaking in fear of what's going on. We need to address it and see how we need to change. And we need to look how this gives us endurance to run the race. Both extremes of our thinking when it comes to the Lord's discipline causes us to stumble, either being indifferent, regarding it lightly, but also being paralyzed in fear of it. We should not be in fear Now, if you've been paying attention, there's a part that you probably have noticed I've skipped over. And this is the part that should keep us out of those extremes. Look at at verse 6, and I'll read it again. For those whom the Lord loves, he disciplines. The Lord's discipline is not out of wrath. It is not out of punishing you out of out of what you have done to him he does it out of love it is good for you the discipline of the lord is a loving discipline many times when we're going through trials we feel abandoned we feel like the lord is away from us but it is quite the opposite as christians he is not abandoning you it's quite the opposite he is with you he is shaping you he is he is shaping you through his discipline because of his love. 
And that is something we cannot forget. That is something that we need to always grasp, that the, that the Lord does these things because he loves us. We need to remember this. We need to not take his discipline lightly, but we do not need to be paralyzed in fear knowing his purpose, that he is doing it because of his love. We need to remind ourselves that the discipline of the Lord actually shows who he loves. It's actually, when it happens in your life, you can look at it and say, the Lord loves me. And that is something we need to remind ourselves. The second reminder of the, the, second reminder of the benefit of discipline is discipline produces endurance and holiness. Discipline produces endurance and holiness. Look at verse 7 with me. It is for discipline that you endure. Once again, we need that endurance. Why? Because there is a race to run. And God gives us discipline through, uh, gives us uh, endurance through discipline. Now, when I was in high school, I played football and I had specifically one coach that he worked really hard to give us endurance and playing sports and many times was a screaming tyrant and it was not very much fun. Now, if you have that picture of some drill sergeant, some screaming tyrant, that is the picture you need to put away when you think of this. Instead, the Lord disciplines us as a loving father. Look at the rest of verse 7. God deals with you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? Our Heavenly Father deals with us as his children. He deals with us in love. And I love the logic here from the writer. He writes, For what son is there whom the, his father does not discipline? There is an expectation that good parents are going to discipline their children for their good. That is an expectation. And when there's a parent that does not, you're not being a good parent. You actually are not loving your child. So if earthly parents, if that's how they should should train up their children, then how much more should God discipline us? But he does it as a loving father. And the author continues, look at verse 8. But you are without dis- but if you are without discipline, of which you have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. So not only, as Christians, should you expect the discipline of the Lord, but if you with- are without it, that's very serious. It means that you are illegitimate. It literally could mean that you may not be a Christian. And this is something that you need to stop and think about. The discipline of the Lord is not just something to expect in our lives, but if it is absent, that is something to take very, very serious. And so in our lives, there needs to be some kind of understanding of what the Lord is doing with us through trials. Now, there's, there's, does there need to be a perfect understanding? No. We do not always quite understand everything that's going on in our lives, but if we do not have hearts that seek God through trials, how we need to change, we don't have the Holy Spirit convicting us of our sin and changing us, that's something to take very, very serious. And something I want to make very clear, when it comes to trials, just because your life is hard, it may not be because of the discipline of the Lord. It may be due to the lack of, 
of discipline of the Lord. Discipline does not look like having free reign to do whatever you want and then dealing with the consequences of your sin because you have just been doing whatever pleases you. That is not what that looks like. His discipline looks like correction. It looks like guidance. You are changing, and that shows that you are a child of his. His discipline should give you endurance, should give you correction. If that is not in your life, that's something to take very, very serious. Very serious. The Lord's discipline points that you are a child of God. This is an expectation. And the author continues in verse 9. Look down with me. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the father of spirits and live So once again, good parents discipline their kids. It is an expectation, and they deserve respect. They deserve respect for that, for the way that they shape your life. They provide for you. They keep you from danger. So how much more should we respect the father of spirits and live? Literally, the father over your souls. He is not some faraway God, but he is with you in shaping your life for your good. And because of that, we need to subject ourselves to that. We need to put ourselves under that teaching, under that correction. We need to be asking ourselves, how can we learn from this? How can this make us more like God? It is for our good. Once again, he is a father, and he deals with us as a father. But he's far better than any, any human parent that you could have. I love verse 10 continuing to speak about earthly parents, the author says, for they disciplined us for a short time time that seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good so that we may share in his holiness. Parents, they do the best they can. They do what's right to them, but as I know, as you know, we make mistakes. And there is the hardest part about parenting is there's a short window. There is a short window to shape your child before all of a sudden they are out in the world and and living life. There's a short little window. However, when it comes to God as our heavenly father, he disciplines us throughout our entire lives. He is always with us and he is perfect and he is perfect in the way that he trains us according to his perfect will. That is something that we can take, be confident in, and we can take confidence in knowing who he is and what he is doing for us. And what is the purpose of his discipline? To give us endurance for the race, but more specifically, look at down at verse 10. So that we may share in his holiness so that we may share in his holiness. We have a holy, perfect God, and he wants us to be like him. So what is holiness? It's just simply being separated, but more specifically being separated from anything that might be morally corrupt. God is completely separated from anything that is morally corrupt, earthly, sinful. He is separated, and he wants us to be separated from those, and he is going to help us with that. And he is going to set us apart for himself by separating us from sin. And by doing this, he's going to bring us to a closer relationship to himself. Once again, this is out of his love. And the question is, do you see this in your life? 
How are you being separated from sin? How are you becoming more like God? This is the purpose of his discipline, and we need to be looking for that in our life of how is that happening? How, is, how are we being transformed to be more like God? And through the process of sanctification, how are we taking that responsibility as we see problems in our life? How are we removing ourselves from sin? That is a responsibility that we have. We need to be looking for that holiness in our life and how we are being transformed. We need to remember that we need his discipline and is out of his love. And moving on, we're, the, uh, verse 11, we are going to uncover the third reminder of God's beneficial discipline. And it is that discipline produces godly righteousness. Discipline produces godly righteousness. Look down with me at verse 11. The author continues, All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. Yet, those who've been trained by it, afterwards, it yields a peaceful fruit of righteousness. So remember, discipline, it's painful. It's scourging. That's something to take very serious. And, but... Even though it may seem sorrowful, it may seem not to be joyful, we actually can have joy through trials knowing what it produces in us. And what does it produce? Look at the second part of verse 11. Yet those who've been trained by it, afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Whatever present pain is going on in our lives, we can press on knowing the future godliness that it is going to produce in us. That is something that we can embrace. It is something that we can actually have joy through. Discipline, training produces righteousness in us. And righteousness, of course, as you all know, is another attribute of God. I like how Wayne Grudem defines it just simply. God's righteousness means that God always acts in accordance to what is right and is himself the final standard of what is right. So living righteously for God is simply living to his standard, living like him, who he is. Our lives should actually point to attributes of God and his righteousness. Now, if you're a Christian, you are already declared righteous. That is something that you did not do. That is something that Christ did by dying on the cross for your sins, and we have his righteousness. We are declared righteous. However, as Christians, as those who have been justified, declared righteous, it is time for our, it is time for our calling to match that, uh, the one who has saved us. Our life needs to match our calling. It is now time to act like the one who has saved us. We need to be righteous. And here's one of the best parts about the fruit of righteousness. It is peaceful. The author says the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Now, this is something where you might have a little whiplash. We've been talking about scourging. We've been talking about suffering, pain. And yet, that sounds everything but peaceful, right? However, that is not true. As Christians, having the assurance that you are a child of God, seeing him shape your life to be more like him, 
that is a peaceful life. We can have peace in seeing the way that he deals with us. It is those who are running completely free of God's discipline, running away from him at breakneck speeds. They are the ones that live in turmoil. They are the ones that live without peace. And yet, due to how God treats us, we can have peace in our life, not just in this life, but our peace continues into the next life. That is something that we can be comforted in. And whatever, whatever experience, whatever pleasures that those without God are, are partaking in, it's for a moment. They, those are things that they get to enjoy for a moment. Us, the pain of being disciplined and being removed from those things, it's for a moment. And yet the results, the fruit of that, last for all eternity. And that is something that we can put our hope in. And we can put our trust in what God is doing for us. So with this passage in mind, with this passage in mind, um, just a few takeaways to meditate on as you guys are thinking about this this week, how God is dealing with you, some of the trials that you are currently going through, how is this shaping you? Here's some takeaways to meditate on. Through trials and affliction, you need to look at how you need to change. That's very simple, right? As things are happening to us, as we are experiencing suffering, we need to look how we need to change. As the pressures of life squeeze us and we see ourselves reacting in ways that do not honor God, we need to change. Those are things that we need to embrace and say that, okay, I need to be more godly in this situation. We need to embrace those hardships to make us more like God. Now, one thing, one thing to be just a little bit careful, careful of, something, something to kind of tack onto that. As we are counseling ourselves, we need to always be looking for how these trials are exposing sin within us, and we need to change. And we need to do that with others. We need to counsel each other. However, we need to be careful when it comes to that. We need to make sure that we're not like Job's friends, that when Job had everything taken away, all of a sudden we're like, okay, what did you do? You did something. We do not need to speak for God. We need to be graceful in counseling one another. These things happen to all of us, and we need to have grace in how we talk about these things, and we do not need to be pointing fingers of, okay, what did you do? Why did God do that for you? He disciplines because he loves you. That is why something happened, because he wants to shape you. So we need to be careful how we think about that. Also, another thing to meditate on, what sin in your life are you holding on to? And getting away with, that is scary. That's terrifying. In fact, it's a, that, that's even a little bit of what Myra is going to be preaching about later this morning. If you have sin that you're holding on to, and there is not repentance for that, you need to be very terrified. And you need to repent now before, because God is not going to look over that. If you are a Christian, you are going to be exposed and you need to be shamed. Now is the time to repent and turn to God for grace, for forgiveness. Now is the time to repent. And then also, there's another danger of that. There is another danger. If you're getting away with sin, once again, it may be because you are not a child of God. He, you may not have his discipline. You may be getting away with it for now, 
because he is not disciplining you. Either way, if there is unrepented sin in your life, now is the time to repent. Now is the time to ask for forgiveness and turn to God for for grace in that sin. And one more takeaway. And this just kind of is something you need to just, everything we're talking about, you need to keep it within this context. But if you are weary from the battle of sin, which if you're not right now, you will be. (laughs) That is something that happens to all of us. If you are weary from the battle of sin, keep your focus on Christ. Going back to verse 3, which is, right, which is right before the verses we went to in, chapter, in verse 4, it says, Consider him who's endured such hostility by sinners against himself that you will not grow weary and lose heart. We cannot lose focus on Christ, our Savior. We cannot lose focus on what he has done and what he is doing through us, and that is going to keep us motivated through any trial. Whenever you are feeling weak, whenever you are feeling weary, think about Christ. We have a Savior who has not just saved us, but we have a Savior who we are being made more like. And that's where we can find our motivation for running the Christian race. We can't forget, God loves his children. He loves us. And if you are a Christian, God loves you. And he will train you, he will correct you, and we can trust him in his sovereignty in our life how he does that for us. He does love us, and we can trust him. Let's pray.